Are you ready to take your mindset to an even higher level on and off the mat? Then you're ready for the BJJ Mental Coach Podcast, where business owners and aspiring entrepreneurs open their minds to new ideas and concepts that will help you during your entrepreneurial journey and during your consistent pursuit of becoming the best version of yourself personally and professionally. It's time to go beyond the mat with the host of the BJJ Mental Coach Podcast, Gustavo Dantas. Welcome to episode 27. I'm your host, Gustavo Dantas, and today you listen to Ben Johnson's interview. Ben is a brown belt in jiu-jitsu and the CEO of Groovy, a digital marketing agency based out of Denmark. Ben talked about how helpful it is having the staff take personality tests to maximize their capabilities. He also talked about scheduling time to think about your life personally and professionally and the title of this episode, The Power Law or the 80-20 Rule. Stay tuned right after the Live Jiu-Jitsu message. The BJJ Mental Coach Podcast is a proud supporter of the nonprofit organization Live Jiu-Jitsu. Live Jiu-Jitsu supports social projects in Brazil and the United States who offer free jiu-jitsu classes to unprivileged children and young adults in impoverished communities inspiring, impacting, and improving their lives, keeping them away from drugs and crime, creating hope, and creating champions on and off the mats. Your donation helps projects to buy new mats, uniforms, tournament registrations, and the monthly expenses of these projects. As a supporter, the BJJ Mental Coaches donate all the profit of t-shirts and patches sales to Live Jiu-Jitsu. For more information, please visit www.liveju-jitsu.org is www.liveju-jitsu.org. Let me introduce you to today's guest, Ben Johnson. Ben is a brown belt in jiu-jitsu, an author, and the CEO of Groovy, a digital marketing agency. Based out of Denmark, Ben has worked in a wide variety of occasions, including marine ecologist, a rave party organizer, and running an artist collective through the Working With Startups. Somewhere along the line, he also managed to squeeze in a university education and a technology management MBA. He has been tinkering with online advertising and social media since the early days of Web 1.0, and he has been fascinated by the possibilities to reach and communicate with audience and mass. Ben, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Gustavo. Nice to meet you. So how did BJJ show up in your life? I think probably the common answer that you get from everyone in there is I watched the UFC mm-hmm. <laughs> way back in, I was living out in Singapore at the time. My girlfriend and I were able to, there's a lots of dodgy video stores there that, that had stuff on the hook. Um, and you know, there was no such thing as copyright uh, protection in, in that part of the world. So it was quite normal to just go out and buy VHS tapes. And uh, we got the UFC one. And it was, uh, I, I come from a judo background. So, you know, I'd, I'd always believed in the principles of good groundwork. And uh, our club was prim- primarily a groundwork-based club in uh, Aberdeen, where I'm from. And the thing I found frustrating about judo was they, they had the rule changes. So, you know, when I first started uh, training at judo and then competing, you know, with the right kind of referee, you could have up to a minute on the ground. And a minute is, is, is long enough to do a technique if you're in the right kind of position. Um, and what frustrated me was the new rule changes that came in with the IBJ, uh, IB, um, IBJJF um, that uh, made the insistence that if no activity happened on the ground, you were stood up within within 10 seconds. Mm-hmm. And consequently, across Scotland, all the groundwork-based clubs just started to get absolutely hammered in the, uh, in, in, in the competitions. Um, and it was only really worth continuing with a groundwork game if you could throw someone and then move directly into a position, uh, submission or, or, uh, or control position. And I, f- I found that a great shame because, you know, I used to enjoy playing around with the wrestlers that were coming across from the U.S., you know, and, and figuring out how their games would work. Um, and this is, re- you know, really the very early days of, of, of you know, Brazilian jiu-jitsu was, was something that I'd, I'd heard about, you know, had been interested in. But there was a sort of whole pre- plethora of sort of uh, Krav Maga and um, Valet Tudo almost based sports that were beginning to creep into the scene where I was training um, and that and a lot of kickboxing and Muay Thai 
but that, it's not something I really, you know, I, I, I didn't really think that the um, striking sports were for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I much preferred the ground game. So based over in Singapore, we watched this, this video together. <laughs> and it kind of, you know, I was just trying to explain to my girlfriend at the time what the principles of the groundwork were. And then you had Royce Gracie come in and just literally devastate everybody, including, you know, uh, some very, very much larger opponents. And I was like, that's it. That's the principle. Um, but it then took me a very long time to actually find uh, a coach and actually start training with everyone. Um, I actually set up a club in Marbella in Spain and uh, we had a whole rigmarole of trying to find um, training space and mats and the right kind of coach. And eventually we ended up flying these guys out from Brazil. And, and finally, after about two years of, of trying with us, we, we got someone who, who stayed in, in Marbella and, and trained us up. Uh, how's how's the scene right now in Denmark? Did you just uh, good? Yeah, good. There's there's a very good. Um, there's there's two dominant clubs. There's CSA where I train, and then there's Arte Suave. Um, and I would say Arte Suave have um, some really really good players. Um, uh, CSA has a good competition team too. Um, but the thing I like about the combat sports academy is is it is just the the training facilities and and the, the good range of friends I've had down there since I since I started training in Denmark yeah eleven twelve years ago now um, so for me it's it's social training I go there two three times a week um, and um, but in terms of the the level of jujitsu in in Denmark it's it's just gone through the roof and uh, the combat sports academy is actually getting a really really slick new section of this uh, public sports center that it's in um so it's actually going to end up with uh, about four or five rooms i think it's it's close to five or six thousand square meters it's a lot of area um so if anyone's coming through denmark i recommend uh, and you want to come and, and train in a in a nice relaxed club with a good vibe come come to csa yeah i was in norway a few years ago uh, at kimura academy and actually, there's some uh, great competitors coming from there. Uh, Aspen, and Tommy, they're standing out in the jiu-jitsu scene. So definitely, it's growing there. And it's awesome to have, like, Tommy was in the finals this year at the Worlds, mm-hmm. and Aspen took third. And this is, uh, this is incredible because it gives hope to a lot of the new practitioners in the area that, hey, it's possible. You know, they're able to, to get it done. So this is um, it's a great motivation for for the practitioners who believe that they do have high level jiu-jitsu in everywhere now in the world and how do you feel bjj relate to life so i wrote this article about gosh nearly four years now and it totally blew up on linkedin when linkedin first had their blogging platform integrated it was really nice to see that there are a lot of bjj practitioners out there agreeing with with the formalities of what i was saying um, and I still read that, that, that article and, it, and everything I've, I've written in, it, it's nice. It, it, it still holds very true. Um, but I think that the main things that, that, that jujitsu helps me with, cause you know, I have a, you know, I have a pretty fun, but rather hectic life. Um, is this idea of, of, of keeping your mind open for innovation and trying new things and, but the routine and the grind also help you kind of embrace the suck that life can sometimes throw at you. Mm-hmm. You know, if I, I, it's very funny, you know, you can have a really, really stressful day. And when I go down and train, when I step onto the mat and the music can be playing really, really loud in the background. But as soon as I start getting to grips with someone, it just disappears. My mind just goes completely blank. And, uh, and then an hour and a half is over and, I feel amazing. So it's those two perspectives, you know, keeping the mind open to try new things, not getting too bogged down in, in, in feeling sorry for yourself when something screws up. Um, coupled with the fact that it's, it's a really tough sport and people are fighting flat out. So, you know, if you're, uh, if you're not putting your hole into it, you're going to, um, you're going to get squashed. Um, and then when you do get squashed, learning to just, up with it and not uh, 
and not give up, keep fighting, keep looking for angles. And uh, I, I find those kind of principles really, really helpful in day-to-day -day life because a lot of what I do is about problem solving under pressure with very limited amounts of time um, and keeping people motivated around me. And I can't really be in a situation where I lose my temper or start shouting, that doesn't work. You know, the, the guys that I've got that are working with me in my company are, you know, are, are good and close and they know what they're doing. Um, and they wouldn't, they wouldn't respect that either if, I, if that was my, my leadership style. So I just find that I'm a much nicer, much more easygoing, much more free thinking, much more liberal minded person when I've had a you know, good few roles in the week. And, you know, I'm in my mid forties now. Um, I've, I've made some adjustments to the way that I roll and I feel like I'm, I'm the best I've ever been, which is nice. Um, I'm still beating up the 19, 20 and 21 year olds in the club, which is mm. always fun. Um, but I, I do feel that it's, it's really part of the, the way for, um, for me to develop as a person. Now, when did you have the spark to pursue the vision with Groovy? What did actually inspire you to do that? I had stopped training for about two to three years and I was working in a really stressful job, um, partly because the company had just been set up to fail. It was one of those unfortunate experiences where too much money had been given to a business before it had actually really properly found its business plan or working, proper working customers. So sad thing about it was it was at the, the beginning of the video advertising revolution. Um, and this was back in 2006, 2007. Um, and unfortunately, it didn't have the right connections, the right management team, you know, all the things that it needed to do. It had this great technology, which if it had been applied in the right kind of way, could have made a lot of money it's just that we didn't have anyone from an ad or agency background in there to guide. Um, and I was responsible for setting up the UK market and flying back and forth from, from UK and I'd stopped training. I put on a ton of weight. Um, I think it was almost up to 103 kilos at one point. Um, and, and just generally hating my life and hating the job without actually having put it into perspective. Um, but then I went to this thing called a startup weekend it was the first one that had ever been launched in in Copenhagen and it was a meetup of about 150 people you know engineers designers business people like myself entrepreneurs ideas people and it was a really wonderful two-day period because I was also writing my thesis at that time for for, for the uh, MBA that I was finishing off and in that one weekend we came up with a business plan a working prototype on a product, a company, corporate video, a logo, whole fully designed website, a, um, a pitch, and we initiated a whole series of customer surveys. And it was like, wow, this is what eight people can do in a weekend. You know, we'd, we'd, we'd been struggling to make some minor readjustments to our website uh, for about six months. Oh. And I thought, you know, Damn, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta do this, right? I've gotta, you know, I've gotta try and break out of this very corporate sort of political uh, environment that I was in. Um, so I'd, I'd, I'd pitched an idea right at the beginning for for what I what our company was trying to solve, but I've been having problems with. And um, at the end of that experience, um, the I didn't my idea was really badly presented and I didn't have a clue how to actually get it up there. But, you know, a, a couple of people approached me afterwards and, and they were basically said, you know, would you like to try and do it? And that's kind of how Groovy started. Um, I basically lost my job about four or five months after that event, but I was so inspired by what I'd seen that, um, that I just took, uh, took the plunge and, and, and started to try and build this idea, which has now turned into Groovy. And how did you deal with all the, the fears, anxieties, and self-doubt that can come along with, because we do have a lot of people here that are in transitions in a position that you were before. They, were, they are in a corporate world and they're not happy. They do have entrepreneurial ideas. And uh, how did you deal with it and what can you, you know, give advice for people in that transition as well? You have to start 
understanding that um, all these human endeavors based around creativity are governed by a power law and that you are more than likely to fail. I think, you know, the number of companies that start and make it into their fifth year is, you know, like two or 3%. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the nature of power laws. You know, this idea of the Pareto distribution, the 80, 20 law, you know, the Matthew principle, it's, it's really fascinating. Um, that, really at the end of the day, the most likely thing that's going to happen to you is you're going to fail. Um, and you need to look at yourself and, and really understand that that is something that could potentially go wrong. Um, you know, you can have bad ideas, you can have bad teammates, you can have, you know, just unlucky things changing in legislation. You can be ripped off, you can be copied. Um, and all those things will, if you let them, absolutely ruin your life. Um, and if you don't have a good balance with a family that's going to support you and a, a network of friends that you can talk to and an advisory board that can get you through the tougher moments and help you make those decisions. Um, and if you're not giving back into the environment that you're in, um, by you know writing about your experiences and trying to share as much knowledge as you possibly can you're constantly going to be very stressed um so there is no such thing in my opinion as you know uh, you're either naive or you know what's coming and it's going to be tough and you prepared yourself for it um and you know naive people don't last very long uh, with that kind of attitude, something will come along and wipe them out at some point. And, you know, it goes back to our story with, with, with my company. And that's ex- exactly what we found out along the way. So it's also important to make sure that once you start your venture, that it doesn't become all consuming. And I think that's something that's very common amongst men. Um, you know, there's a pride angle, there's a uh, obsessive angle that, that some guys have, and particularly on the entrepreneur side of things, that can forsake, you know, everything that's going on around you, and you don't want to lose that. You know, your life should be interesting and committed, but it, you you don't want to be in a situation whereby you failed and burnt all your bridges around you, including the most important ones, which is your family and your children. Um, so I think it's very important that you have things that balance you out. For me, it's my, you know, jujitsu and my children and the fact that my wife and I like to go traveling a lot and, um, you know, we're working on the house and, you know, we, we, we try and introduce things into our lives that just don't allow you to go down the rabbit hole of work all the time. Um, and then I think, you know, if you enter that with that kind of realistic, realistic expectation that things will fail more than likely will fail, sorry. Um, when, and if they do, you'll be more prepared for them and they won't take you out in quite the same way. Uh, you could treat your experience as, you know, I mean, I, I think largely a lot of university-based educations are not giving you the real-world experience that you need. You should start a business at some point in your life to actually fully understand just how complicated uh, it can be to manage so many different things uh, from employees down to clients, to product, to technical management, to accounts management. But it is a baptism of fire and you'll come out of it a much better person even if you do screw up or something does wipe you out. And if you have that attitude from day one, you're going to be so much more prepared for when those things do turn sour in order to try and figure out what to do next. Got it. And what did you say is your worst entrepreneurial experience and what did you learn from it? So we were talking about naivety mm-hmm. as, uh, as, 
as as two ways you can go when you start your company and i think we were very naive right at the beginning and we were very lucky as well so um part of what we're building from have built from groovy since that experience is an improvement on a product that we should have focused on right at the beginning um but we were a little bit distracted by this idea that we were trying to build right at the beginning that kept on resurfacing even though commercially we we're making money from another product and because we didn't focus on the product that was making us money we kept on trying to do the thing that we'd have initially dreamed about um we got wiped out by a competitor that came in and basically took our lunch <laughs> and uh, uh we went from from you know lots of zeros in the bank account to virtually nothing coming in uh overnight and it was a awful experience you know to have suddenly realized how wrong we were um but it's those kinds of things that you know really um make you pick yourself up and 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 look at the the way that you're approaching things and that was back in um end of 2013 i think the company's a much stronger position than it's ever been before with a much more diversified um client portfolio and product portfolio now um but if i was to go back to 2013 with just a little bit of a more open-eyed attitude on things i think i would have very quickly picked up on uh, on what we were doing wrong and made those changes so we didn't have to go through quite such a baptism of fire mm-hmm. it was one of those things that when i look back on my career too is accepting that I did or we did the best we could with the emotional maturity that we had at that moment. If we had, you know, a higher level of emotional maturity, maybe yeah, we did it done differently, but we did, you know, what you knew at that point and all we can do is literally learn from it. And I think that's when you see who has, who has the entrepreneurial DNA and has the entrepreneurial tendencies that think like, oh, it's cool to have a business. And that's something that Gary Vaynerchuk talks about. When you have that DNA, even when you had the struggle like you had, you're still going to bounce back from it. You're going to keep going. For some people, they may have just some entrepreneurial tendencies. Be like, oh, man, I'm done with that. You know, let me just get back to work and do something else because it's not going to work. So in those moments that you really see who wants to play that game, and it's hard. You know, like I said, it's hard. And some of the lessons that we see right now it's just we just didn't have the clarity but just come with the experience so i don't even try to think about too much about my <laughs> my some of my struggles that i'm like hey i already learned from it you know wish it could have done differently but i didn't know let's go you know now what would you um what would you like to share with the listeners some some type of content or a concept that you apply in your business that would be helpful for for the listeners who already are in business or even planning on being in business what would you say it's the it's the applied theory of 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 power law success um it's actually a very very small percentage of what you do will yield most of the results that you get um mm-hmm. And it can be a problem in terms of identifying what that is. I mean, you heard the old sort of marketing term that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm spending a lot of money, but uh, I only know that 50% of my budget is working, right? So the issue that I think a lot of people uh, have is it's good to be busy, but if you're not taking the time out to review the things that you're doing and figuring out what's important versus urgent versus what's going to yield you the biggest return in whatever factor you're looking at, whether it be revenue or PR or growth or, you know, employee sustainability, there'll be, there'll be one or two things that, that, that are, that you will need to change and you'll see big improvements. Um, so I would say this understanding of, 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 of the importance of a power law and the power law is a totally different thing to like a normal distribution. You know, you look, you look at something like a bell curve, you know, diagram like height or IQ or things like these, you know, it's a very normal distribution over a given, given population, but a power law is always a hockey stick. It's long and flat until it isn't. And then it goes straight through the roof. And so if 
you are looking at yourself objectively and you can take time out to really consider what you're doing. You'll be in a better position to figure out what those things are. And, you know, a good maxim in management of people is, and I found it useful, is, is not to focus on your most poorly uh, performing employees. Um, what you want to do, if you're approaching things with a power law distribution in mind, is to take your best performing employee and completely clear any roadblocks that are causing them to not do what they're good at. Mm-hmm. And that's when you start to see really interesting returns. Um, the other thing I think is very interesting is the impact of things like personality. And, um, you know, there are all kinds of different tests out there like Myers-Briggs or, um, gosh, you know, it's, it's, it's a very trendy area amongst psychologists and, uh, who are doing occupational therapy. Um, this idea of, you know, creating plans, but they're all based on this thing called the big five personality test. And the big five personality test break, breaks down into five micro personas for each, for each quality, whether that be extroversion or neuroticism, your, your reaction to negative emotion, um, conscientiousness, your ability to, you know, to, to work uh, diligently and dutifully uh, according to a given set of rules, your openness, your ability to think laterally, and to engage with the more artistic senses. Um, you know, these, these, these fundamental personality types, if you get the raw data out of a big five analysis, you can actually start to plot the people that you should be hiring. So for me, HR was always a bit of a random thing because, you know, I'm quite extrovert and I like to talk to people and, you know, it, it doesn't get long. It, it doesn't take me long to get friendly with someone. But consequently, I'm a, I found I was an appalling hire because I'd have a chat with someone for an hour or two and we'd get on really, really well. And then I'd, I, I, I wouldn't be able to see past the fact that I liked them. And then, of course, you get down to the very disappointing thing of they didn't really like the job or that they couldn't do the job or they're just not interested in the job. Um, so what I found was doing a personality test with someone is a really, really good step into adding a quantitative measure into the qualitative process of interviewing people. So if you think, all right, I need a, someone who's a business development person. Well, they're probably going to need to be a bit extrovert and they're probably going to need to think quite laterally. Um, and they're probably going to lead to be fairly low on the element of neuroticism because business development takes a lot of rejection. And it's a combination between sales and business. But ideally, you want someone who can persevere through the tough things as well and also, you know, write things out properly. So if you, if you, if you have an idea of what the profile for the job is, you can almost build that, that personality sheet of what you're looking for in a candidate. And then once people start taking a test, you can start to actually figure out, okay, this guy's going to be probably a little bit too volatile for the role, or, you know, he's a bit too open-minded and there's not enough conscientiousness in, in his, in his answers to, you know, to, to, to justify the, 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 the risk in me taking him on, um, for this more, um, more complex role that requires a lot of diligence. And I found that since then I can actually then, concentrate on really talking to people because I know fundamentally how they tick. It's also very good for understanding yourself and what your weaknesses are mm-hmm. and what you should be hiring around you to, to make up for those weaknesses. Because everyone is aware of their strengths or they like to think they are, but there's not many people are willing to fess up to their weaknesses. Um, and my weaknesses are, you know, I'm not conscientious. I'm a new idea starter. I very easily get distracted. I don't, I don't like to stick around and finish things. I like to move on to next projects, which makes me a nightmare to work with, with conscientious people. But then when I explain it to them, look, this is how I work. And this is why I want you to work with me. And this is how we'll, we'll maintain some kind of respect between each other. You know, my guys trust me because 
I'm the one that goes out there and makes the big ideas happen. And, but I'm also someone who takes a step back from control when I need, when I know things need to be done properly and, uh, and finished to a degree of detail that I wouldn't be interested in doing myself. Um, so yeah, so two things, the understanding of the power law, uh, in, uh, in relation to business and, and attitudes towards where you should be concentrating your efforts. And if I think if you can wrap your head around that, it's a very useful tool. It's basically the four hour work week. I mean, Timothy Ferris, you know, mm-hmm. put that in, into a book, but essentially it's a Pareto distribution of effort and it's anything creatively orientated around what we do as humans is governed by a Pareto distribution, a power law, an 80, 20 rule, you know, a one in a hundred. That's what you're looking at. Same with starting a business, but at the same time, you know, understand you, you use humans to build businesses so you have to have a very practical understanding of how humans tick tock right and un- personality is a one extremely important uh component of that um and i found it immeasurably useful to to use personality tests as a way to answer questions about myself or answer questions about how i would approach the role and who i should be looking for i I feel that it's cru- uh, crucial. I, I agree 100% with you. I've done some of the personality tests as well. And one of the issues that come very often here to the podcast is regarding to staff. You know, the leadership role is not an easy thing. Find the right person working with the right personality is definitely a, a huge challenge. Maybe some people deal better than others. I do my best to just read books and uh, uh, listen to people who are great leaders and try to pick up as much as they can. One of the things that I have noticed, and I talk about in two things, two or three episodes ago, one of the topics that that came up was about mindset and different mindsets people have. There's a book called Mindset by Carol Dweck that talks about the growth mindset and the fixed mindset. And that's something to, I started to pay more attention when I learn about having the growth mindset of the people that exactly that they're, they're willing to always work on improving and learning from failures and fixed mindset, having that, that close-minded, the blaming. If someone brings a feedback to them, they take extremely personal, and, and that's a challenge. And, and it's important to look at those patterns because they will repeat itself. And, and that's something that uh, I've been able to minimize some of the pain that I, I couldn't see years ago, especially regarding to staff of like, if someone has a fixed mindset, there's a really good chance I'm not the one going to be able to change him. You know, they got to change themselves. You know, if they're going to be completely resistant, defend, just defending themselves the whole time, I'm like, man, what am I going to do with this guy? You know, and uh, it's, it's, it's a tough one. And, and as I've, I agree 100%. You learn it, the, the personality one, it's so important because sometimes you do have a good employee, uh, but it's just not for that position. He can shine in a different different role, you know, when you actually start to understand more of the personality. So I agree 100%. And that's, I definitely want to keep talking more with people about that staff situation, uh, who you work with, and knowing your strength, like you said, because it's so important. Now, what did you say is a one high-performance habit that you have that you're utilizing in martial arts, in your in professional, in a personal life every day? Oh, many. Okay. <laughs> um, I'd have to split it down, down the middle. In Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, it's very much now the trying to concentrate on breathing mm-hmm. and trying to keep the heart rate slow and steady by breathing through the mouth and out through the nose. When I spar, trying to move other parts of my body that I, you know, have neglected, you know, looking at the feet position, the windscreen wiper position with the, with the knee to the foot, you know, these little micro movements, because that's what jujitsu is about at the end of the day. Um, you know, the leverage is so infinitesimally small, very difficult to explain from a, you know, from a practitioner's perspective. 
Um, I, I, I really loved that video, the invisible judici video that was in my article. That really exposed something that just a small differential movement in the neck means that the bridge becomes so much stronger. Um, that the kazushi or the little pull in a throw in the setup is so important in the uh, in the movement to get someone else moving before you try and toss them over your hip or your leg. And that's something that I've been really concentrating on in the sparring. And it's kind of funny, like I, I'm at a stage now with the jujitsu, I'm really just enjoying playing with it and seeing what went wrong and talking to myself after the fights to see where I want, went wrong defensively. But typically, you know, what I find is just prior to getting tapped, my breathing will be out of whack. And I've noticed that once the breathing gets out of whack, you stop thinking laterally and your defense goes out the window. Your positioning goes out the window. Uh, and then, you know, you're left to just what I'm trying to avoid, just the violent spazzing out of a move, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's the certain element of that that really helps right at the last minute if you can do that. But it's also, it's also not the way that I think the jujitsu should work. Best advice I was ever given when I was a white belt when I was asking about how you, uh, how'd you get out of triangles was like, well, just don't get into one, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think with the jujitsu, that's something that I've begun to play with now. And I'm, I'm much more conscious of like the small positioning of the hips or where my weight is centered. Um, and I, I find that I'm beginning to join dots that I've never done before because everything's been around set patterns of movement and it doesn't work across a full range of, you know, you need to put that nuance in with a bigger opponent or a smaller opponent or a faster opponent. Um, so, and, and, and be conscious of those mistakes as you get kind of wiped out or flattened out or, or, you know, um, submitted. So that, that's on the, the jujitsu side. On the business side, I think if I was to try and draw a parallel between the two, it's, it's, the, it's the attempt to try and take yourself out of things, not work weekends uh, or not work all the time. Um, even, even after a, a stressful day, um, you know, it's, the training's easier. Maybe it's not such an easy thing to just sit down and start talking to my son and playing with him. You know, maybe I've got to try and calm down, but I, I force myself to do that. I do find that the reward will come, you know, uh, yeah. within 20 or 30 minutes. And again, I think it's probably related to a, a lot to do with breathing. So I think, yeah, across the two things, if I was to really examine what it was, it would be putting a little bit more thought into the way that I'm doing things. Um, the way I'm talking to people, the, the thoughts that I'm thinking, um, the actions that I do as a result. And just being conscious of those changes that happen and, and if they fail, asking myself continually that question, okay, so what happened there? Why did that go wrong? Yeah, and breathing is a habit that helps, like I said, in jiu-jitsu and in every area. Personally, I have some different alarms throughout the day, <laughs> my, my phone, that sometimes it's just a phrase or something that pops up. Sometimes it just take me like 10, 20 seconds just to breathe and center how present I am right now. Sometimes I could be driving a freeway and I'm just in La La Land, just and suddenly that comes up and be like, oh, wow, I'm not present at all. And sometimes it just brings me up for me to take a deep breath and, okay, be more present, see what I'm doing. So I do that very often in my everyday stuff, you know, just mini breaks just to breathe, just to center. And it could be a five minute, it could be 10 seconds just to regroup. So that's actually one of the habits that I do with, that I have is, you know, practicing the, the breathing. Of course, we breathe 20, you know, all day long, but what I'm saying is really be mindful of the, of the breathing. Now, what did you say is the best advice you've ever received for life, for entrepreneurship, you can mention if it's jujitsu if you want, but what did you say? <laughs> Everyone rolls their eyes when I tell them this, but uh, yeah, 
Okay. All right. So the, it wasn't so much a, a, um, advice. It was something that just fundamentally changed me when I heard it. Uh, my dad's a geologist. And so anytime we drove anywhere when I was a child, I always get an explanation of what rock formations were doing, what, what point during, you know, the ancient, ancient history of this planet. And, um, I didn't necessarily soak it in. In fact, I really used to get quite annoyed with my dad when he would make these massive detours and take us off to some quarry to go and look at a rock. Um, but um, I was listening to a chap called Randall Carlson on Joe Rogan. Yeah, it was about three, three and a half years ago. And his theory is that uh, we as humans are far older than we give ourselves credit for. And... Um, the way that he proves his point is that he points to pretty much all ancient mythologies and religions and then, and shows that they all have a consistent flood myth in them. Um, that flood myth is actually linked to a lot of the geological formations that we see in, uh, Western United States, this area called the Scablands. And the point that I'm going to try and make here without causing too many of you listeners to start rolling their eyeballs up towards the top of their heads is um, we survived as a species through an incredible uh, point in our existence and a period called the Younger Dryas where, you know, we're talking about a four or five degree climate change uh, or temperature rise over the next, you know, hundred years. Um, there was an 18 degree temperature change. It snapped out of the ice age and back into the ice age in under a couple of hundred years, but by 18 degrees. So the earth got very, very warm and then very, very cold again, straight afterwards. And that activity um, led to, they think the extinction of pretty much all the large animals in, in the United States things like the uh, short-faced bear and the woolly mammoth and the woolly rhino um, and the disappearance of certain cultures of people like the Clovis people. Now, that point in history, if you study that part uh, of paleontology, is super interesting because the earth was under tremendous change for several hundred years, probably more than that, literally hell on earth, uh, where um, huge amounts of volcanic activity, large tsunamis, um, deluges and rain like you've never seen before. Um, and we survived that as a species and came out and did some incredible things after that. But I, when I heard that, it really made me realize just how resilient we can be as humans. Um, because the podcast to this day, I, I, mean, I still go back and listen to it. I think Randall Carson does a very, very good job of kind of describing the geological um, tempest that was going on at that time. Um, and then you listen to someone like Graham Hancock, who you know um, wrote Fingerprints of the Gods, who's much more a storyteller uh, but also introduces a lot of science and archaeology into his, uh, into his, as references into his work. And once I got sort of hooked on that, uh, I felt my life change. I felt that, you know, um, for some strange reason, and I've, I've, you know, I've always enjoyed education. And I've always enjoyed reading, but that's, that really stood out to me. But if we could get through that as a species um, and still come out the other end doing the things that we've done now, then there's not much that can stop us. And that, I think, gave me a tremendous feeling of hope for humanity. And I think, you know, given the things that are going on now with our politics and climate, I think, you know, there's a calling for good people uh, who are good leaders, who are competent, uh, who are truthful to merge.
and part of this ancient storytelling that goes on about the um, rise of civilizations across, you know, um, Latin America and ancient Egypt is these strange people who popped up out of nowhere but were treated like gods because they had knowledge and intelligence of a much older civilization, which I think was something that was wiped out by this cataclysm that hit Earth 12,800 years ago. And it would be very interesting if we could get into a bit more of an understanding of what that prehistory looked like. And I think it's going to start to come out now over the next 20 to 30 years. And I think that will have a revelationary impact on people that we're not just stumbled out of a cave and then started farming 6,000 years ago, that potentially there was something going on 20, 30, maybe 40,000 years ago that was really amazing and is maybe, you know, buried or underwater or under a sheet of ice that we are going to come across that's going to completely blow us away. Got it. Now, what advice would you give to your younger self when you when you had the spark for Groovy, if you could have a conversation with your younger self, what is the one thing that you'd tell them? Stop and think. I think that would be it. Stop, think, tell the truth. You felt that you were just kind of impulsive. You just have an idea and just boom, do it, do it, do it, do it. And didn't think yeah, through. I think, that, I think that was, you know, that, that's part of the thing that gets you out of the door. And, and mm -hmm. you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't give up on that person, part of my personality. It's, yeah. it's who I am, but it should always be tempered with some form of wisdom. And, you know, I've been very, very lucky throughout my life. I've, you know, I have a wonderful wife and two great kids and nice home and, you know, um, a good bunch of colleagues that, you know, I trust and they trust me. Uh, <laughs> but you can always do better. And the only way that you do better is by stopping and thinking about what you're doing. And in order to do that, you need to make time for yourself. Yes. And especially in the busy day today, I think a lot of people don't take that time to think. And that's something actually I do like to practice. And I do that a lot. I think especially being a, a major introvert, that is fairly easy for me. But it starts to, you know, really think more about it because sometimes people are just so busy. Man, I, I got no time. And if you don't have maybe like five minutes just to stop to really think about what's going through your mind, you know, what the feelings that you have, uh, this piles up. So uh, that's actually a, a good tip to just tell people, man, just, just take, take a few minutes. Take a few minutes for you just to, you know, think about now, what book would you recommend and why? Maybe a powerful book. Of course, there's, you mentioned that you like to read. It's tough to mention just one, but a book that came in a specific moment of your life that made a big impact on you. Thinking Fast and Slow is the Israeli professor. And I just wrote a blog post about it because if you, if you read that book, you'll get sales, you'll get product design, you'll get uh, user interface design. There's so many hardcore truths nailed into that book from a behavioral perspective that really, really makes sense. So for instance, the, the, the hiring thing that I was telling, telling you about, it's always better to have some kind of statistical, mathematical based quantitative study whenever you do something qualitative, which is like asking interview questions. The way that the brain works in terms of interpreting new data and how we rely on our emotional senses for actually making decisions is really, really important. Um, mm -hmm. And it's a tough book to read. It's not exactly something you can pick up and, and drop into because it's so dense. But it is honestly one of the best books I've ever read. Uh, and I still haven't finished it. I picked it up four months ago. Um, mm -hmm. And I just find myself going back and rereading chapters. Um, but it's real drop in wisdom. Um, in that book. And so if you're designing a website or you're designing a sales presentation or you're thinking about writing a letter to someone um, or you're thinking about hiring or any of these things, it's very important to understand how the brain works and actually 
how much we're not responsible for the way that we behave and act because of the impacts of things like personality and the impact of things like the much older limbic systems within our brains that are actually responsible for the way that we feel. And our behavior is based on a lot to do with the way that we feel. Now, what are you currently excited about? What's going on with Groovy? Any big projects coming up? Yeah, so we, we just won a grant from the European Union that we've, we've yet to find time to actually talk about to anyone. Um, so uh, we are building a data project for European or independent film that will make it easier for film producers and distributors to launch their movies to, to known groups of audiences. Obviously, we're, we're complying with GDPR, so it's, uh, it's uh, uh, PII data, which means it's data that is uh, not personally identifiable. Um, we are having a cracking rate of sales right now, which is great. It's one of the reasons why I've been so busy, Gustavo, is just uh, since, since July, our, our, uh, our sales figures have all nearly doubled. Um, so we're dealing with the growing pains of a small business that's turning into sort of uh, a bigger business. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's fun to manage, and we're figuring it out as we go along. And then, yeah, we're about to have our first Christmas in Denmark in 11 years. So wow. <laughs> I think it's going to be a white Christmas because <laughs> my parents are coming up and uh, yeah, we're looking forward to getting the house ready for that. Um, our kids are super excited as well. So uh, yeah, a lot to look forward to. Cool. So for all the listeners, we're getting close to the end of the interview. So make sure to stick around for my final thoughts of the interview at the end. And Ben, any final message that you'd like to give to the listeners, how they can find more about your work, if you want to give any social media, and anything that you'd like to plug, go ahead. It's at Project Groovy. Um, that's the company uh, Twitter profile. We basically publish about marketing within film, television, and games, which are the three areas that we, we try and focus on. And then there's my personal blog, which is at Ben Wes, B-E-N-W-E-S. Um, and there, that's more things like uh, identity politics, which tends to fascinate me right now. Um, and uh, more of a political bias in that. <laughs> uh, and then I also write on Medium and LinkedIn. So if that's associated with my profiles. You'll be able to track me down there. Um, and check out groovy.tv if you've got a piece of content you want to help with getting launched. Got it. Thank you so much, Ben. I appreciate your time. I know you're very busy with the, the growth of the company. I really appreciate and, and try, some, try to get some different audience to get some people from Europe. So I appreciate your time. So for all the listeners, make sure to stick around for my final thoughts. Thank you, Ben. Who's? Thanks, Gustavo, for having me. Been a real pleasure. Let me share with you my final thoughts from the interview with Ben Johnson. For those who are just listening to the final thoughts, Ben is a brown belt in jiu-jitsu and the CEO of Groovy, a digital marketing agency based out of Denmark. Ben talked about how helpful it is having the staff take personality tests to maximize their capabilities, which is a great recommendation, by the way. He also talked about scheduling time to think about your life, personal and professionally. And my main takeaway of the interview, the 80-20 rule, which is also known as the power law or Pareto law. In 1906, the Italian Vilfredo Pareto noticed the rule for the first time in his garden. What he noticed was that 20% of the pea pods generated 80% of the healthy peas. And this observation led him to notice that 80% of the land in Italy was owned by 20% of the population. The concept of Pareto Law states that 20% of input or activity are responsible for the 80% outputs or results. For example, 80% of the time you wear 20% of the clothes that you own. Or 80% of your income comes from only 20% of your customers. And the inverse is also true. 80% of the customers are generating only 20% of the results. However, you should note that this is not a universal law, and it can differ in many situations. It could be 70, 30, 90, 10, 99, 1. The point is the imbalance of distribution. The majority of results come from the minority of causes, and the minority of results come from the majority of causes. 
Now, how can you use the 80-20 rule in your everyday life? I tell you what, I've learned of the Pareto law a long time ago, and I didn't look much into it, to be honest. However, this has been a very nice review for me since I've been researching extra information online to share with you on the final thought. So I decided to share two suggestions on how you can use the power law in your personal and professional life. Now, let's start with the professional life. However, this can also be used for personal. 80% of results are coming from 20% of your efforts. It's not about the time you put in. It's about how well you spend that time. Very often, people get confused about the difference of being busy and productive. So be careful when you're creating a to-do list. Let's say you have a list with the top 10 things you must do to achieve the success you desire. Now, which two things will help you to move the needle even faster? Choose, then focus on these 20% that will give you 80% of your results. Very often, people end up focusing on the 80% of the tasks because of some of discomfort or fear of the necessary tasks of the 20%. Always put the most uncomfortable tasks on the top of your list and in the beginning of the day because when you put it at the end of the day, sometimes it's easy to just talk yourself out of it like, ah, it's getting late, ah, just do it tomorrow. And if is this the task that is going to help you to get one step closer to your goal, so you got to do it. My second suggestion is for your personal life. The late motivational speaker Jim Rome said, We are the average of the five people that you hang out the most with. He called the power of the association. I have mentioned in prior final thoughts. Now, who do you hang out with? The 80-20 rule shows that 20% of your friends, family give you 80% of your fulfillment and joy that you get from social interactions. The other friends, the 80% are giving you 20% of fulfillment. With that being said, this is a good time to reevaluate your personal associations. Jim Rome suggested three questions. Number one, who do you hang out with? Who do you spend the most amount of time with? Sometimes it could be a coworker that sits next to you for eight hours a day is extremely negative and toxic. However, it could be someone who is positive and inspire you. Number two, What kind of person are you becoming because of the influence of these associations? Which means, where do you go? What do you say? What do you eat? What habits did you pick up because of the influence of this specific association? And number three, the most important question, in my opinion, is that okay? According to your values and morals, is there any problem with the action of this association and the person that you are becoming? I hope the answer is no and everything is great. Now, if the answer is yes, you're actually not happy. Something needs to be done so you can get your 80% of fulfillment and you become a 20% person to someone else. Basically, Jim Rome gives three options that I personally use in my life. Number one, delete. If you feel that this association is very toxic for you, you already have talked to this person, the negativity doesn't stop, I guess delete them. Number two, limit time with the association. This is the best one for family and relative issues. Some people are okay to spend a few minutes with it, but not a few hours. Some people are okay to hang out for a few hours, but not for a few days. You get the picture. Limit the time with the association. And third, expand association. For example, in 2012, I got involved with public speaking. And at that moment in my life, I didn't have anyone from my associations that knew anything about it. So I joined Toastmasters. It's a public speaking club. It's all over the world. You can find at toastmastersinternational.org. To learn more about it and to develop relationships, from the Toastmasters, my mentor Joe Weldon took me to the National Speakers Association. When I joined the NSA, they were starting their first public speaking academy, and I signed up at the spot. During this 10-month course, I met my future wife, Carissa, and today we've been together for almost five years, and she's a huge part of my 20% that brings me fulfillment and joy in my social interactions. Now, what about you? Who are your 20% that are bringing fulfillment and joy in your life? 
use the power law in any area of your life. If you can identify the 20% that produces the greatest outcome, you can spend more time doing that to create an even greater payoff. And it also helps you to cut back on the 80% of the things that you waste your time being busy, which creates 20% of your results. Remember, it's not about the amount of time you put in. It's about how well you spend that time. Oh, We're glad you were able to join us for this episode of the BJJ Mental Coach Podcast. But the lesson doesn't end here. Watch the videos and download the audio of the 10 mental mistakes BJJ competitors make and how to avoid them for free when you subscribe to the BJJMentalCoach.com. Don't miss the chance to find out what might be holding you back from being your best self on and off the mat. That's the BJJMentalCoach.com.